You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. One of the highlights of my week is getting to worship with you and to grow and learn in God's word together. I truly look forward to it. And it's great to have all of you here this morning, almost afternoon. So great to have you here. Well, I know, as always, it seems there's something in the news cycle that reminds us of the brokenness of our world. And this one's pretty unavoidable. I know Pastor Bob spoke to this a little bit as we started our time in worship today, but this is a picture of the Mandalay Bay Hotel and those broken out windows where the shooter shot down into this gathering of 20,000 people and so many lives were ended in and forever changed. And it's easy to, to look at this and to be reminded of the reality that we do live in a broken world. But also with that though, Sometimes we can struggle for perspective, and understandably so. It's hard to make sense out of something when like this happens. And it's easy for us to forget that we serve a God who is a God of of hope, a God of just more than perspective, a God of of hope. And I was reminded of this this week. I um, had a doctor's appointment earlier this week. I've been a part of a research study for about three years now on, uh, it's a, it's a research study on blood sugar. I have really high blood sugar, and for some strange reason, I exercise like crazy. There's no history of high blood sugar in my family, but still here I am, you know, pre-diabetic. And so I've been part of this research with some experimental um, drugs through, through Kaiser, and I've been going to this research study for the last three years, and over that course of time, when you see people that frequently, you get, you get to know them a little bit. You build some rapport. Everybody there knows I'm a pastor, and they know I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. And I was talking with one of the nurses at the end of my round of appointments that day and getting ready to leave, and we were talking about the shooting because it was heavy on everyone's minds. And I said, well, how do you make sense out of this? You know, how, how do you process this? And she said, I... I'm not really sure how to process it. And so therefore I try to surround myself with people who have who have perspective and who have some sense of hope. And she said, You're one of those people. I thought, wow. Well that's that's great. Because we do have hope as Jesus followers. This is another painful yet constant reminder that this world is is broken. It is not the way God intended it to be. We broke it. Yet we have a God who is actively at work redeeming, repairing, restoring, renewing this world to what he always intended it to be. And he has promised us that someday he's going to come back. And when Jesus does, everything will be fulfilled, everything will be completed, everything will be restored to the way God intended it to always be. But it's not like we're just marking time here trying to hang on. God is at work now. He is actively redeeming our world now, and that is a tangible hope that we have. And the Apostle Paul is going to speak to that hope in Philippians chapter three today as we look at this passage together. In fact, he's gonna introduce us to the realities of this is what it means to know God. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower. And hopefully he's going to inoculate us against the danger of empty religion. So as we read through this passage, These are just some of the things it's going to speak to. Look for hope. Look for what does it mean to be a Jesus follower. Look for encouragement. And look for what Paul is seeking to protect us from as we we read this. So let me read it to you. If you have a tablet or phone, take it out and turn it on or turn in your hard copy Bible to Philippians 3. 
Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So there is a lot here, so let's begin to work our way through this. And once again, here is this idea, this reality of joy, of happiness. Rejoicing is the verbal form of that. Be happy, be, be joyful in the Lord. As we've looked at, it permeates, it pervades this letter. Paul is constantly talking about joy, and as we open this letter, remember we looked at the reality that yes, joy and happiness is situational, it is circumstantial, but there is also a dimension of joy and happiness that rises above and transcends circumstance and difficulty. That is from the Lord. That is a joy and a happiness that nothing and no one can steal from you unless we let it. And one of those enemies of joy, one of those entities that can rob us of the joy God wants us to have, ironically, is religion. Empty religion, to be specific. And so now Paul is going to try to inoculate them once again against the dangers of empty religion. And so he dives in and says this, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, if someone calls someone else a dog in our culture, is that a compliment? No, and it was not a compliment in that culture either. When you think of dogs, what do you think of? Do you think of dogs like this? Those are our dogs. That's Jonah and Jersey, and yes, they're, they're cute. And it is a little troubling that some of our other preachers, like Gary Brashears, for instance, show pictures of beautiful grandkids and kids, and I show pictures of my dogs. That's a little disturbing. But this is not the dogs that are being talked about here. This is the type of dog that's being talked about here. Because the dogs in this culture, the stray ones in particular, wandered the streets eating garbage, refuse. They were dirty. They were dangerous. They were not to be trusted. They were unclean. Jews often spoke of non-Jews, Gentiles, as dogs because they were considered to be unclean. So it's rather ironic for Paul to now say the true dogs 
are those who continue to embrace empty religion, who keep trying to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ because when you add to the gospel, ironically, you begin to lose the gospel. And then he declares this, we are the circumcision, which is a really loaded statement that we'll just spend a little bit of time on. Circumcision goes back all the way to the book of beginnings, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In Genesis 17, God declared, God commanded that he wanted his people to show that they were his people by becoming circumcised. It was a way to show they were set apart and had a special relationship with their God. But over and over again, we see God's people thinking that because they are outwardly circumcised, that they must be okay with, with God. And over and over again, the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers speak to this reality of what God was always looking for with his people being circumcised was for the outward circumcision to reflect the internal circumcision, or to put it another way, to show that their hearts had been changed by God, that their character, the true core of who they were had been changed. This is analogous to someone in our culture today who has a Bible verse tattooed somewhere on their body who thinks that makes them right with God. Even though they don't live it, even though they don't really care about it, they have this tattoo, so therefore they must be okay with God. And Paul's saying that's, that's not how it works. You see, empty religion tries to change us from the outside in. Do this, don't do that, adhere to that moral code, live this way, live that way. Christianity declares we change from the inside out by God giving us a new heart, completely changing us from the inside out. It's entirely different. And Paul's trying to inoculate them against this empty religion. And it's a religion that often tries to make itself self-righteous. And this is where Paul begins to steer into this and he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. And he said, but if you wanna play that game, we sure can. And basically what he does is he rolls out his religious resume. I have Paul's resume right here. It's on the screen behind me, but he says, okay, you wanna go down that road? You wanna play the game of who has the best religious resume? Let's go there circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. What he's declaring here is that, hey, I wasn't a convert to Judaism. I am an ethnic Jew. I was born a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, very important tribe in the history of Israel. The first king came from Benjamin, Saul. The first king of Israel was a Benjamite. This tribe remained loyal to David. And what literally Paul was saying here is I can trace my ancestry all the way back to Abraham which was hugely, hugely important in that culture. A Hebrew of Hebrews. It means his parents spoke Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew. In a, again, a day and age when many of the Jews were being Hellenized by Grecian culture, many of them were losing their own culture. They could no longer speak Hebrew. But he says, no, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, which means separate. The Pharisees were the separate ones in that they, more than anyone else, were meticulous observers of the law. In fact, they took commandments from the Old Testament 
And they believed in an oral tradition that they also believed went all the way back to Moses that provided further amplification and interpretation of those Old Testament commands. For example, what does it mean you are not to work on the Sabbath? Well, they had over 20 different commands of what you could and couldn't do in order to try and adhere to what they thought the law was teaching. As for zeal, persecuting the church. We know from reading the book of Acts in the New Testament that when Jesus found Paul and Paul responded to Jesus, prior to that, he was persecuting the church. He was going out of his way to arrest Jesus' followers. He was making sure that many of them went to their deaths. As for righteous based on the law, righteousness, faultless. He was blameless. He followed the law. And when he sinned, he offered the necessary sacrifices. Folks, this is a top-tier resume. They don't get any better than this when it comes to religious resumes. So what's the purpose of a resume? What's the purpose of a resume in our culture? It's to get you an interview so that you get a job. It's to in part, get you on the team, get you a part of the corporation or whatever you're applying for, right? So Paul is saying, if anyone can declare themselves self-righteous because of how religious they are, I'm the guy. So what did God think about that? What does God think about self-righteous religious resumes? What does Paul think about it? He goes on to tell us. This is what God thinks of religious resumes and what Paul says his religious resume was worth. That's the value of a religious resume. That's what it means when Paul says, in part, we put no confidence in the flesh. You cannot make yourself righteous before God. In fact, for those of you who like numbers, this is a counting language that he uses in this verse. And he says, this is like a huge Excel spreadsheet. And everything that I thought was a gain for me, my wonderful religious resume, is now a loss. Everything moves from this column to this column because that's not what it means to believe in God, to be declared righteous. In fact, he goes on, it's more than just loss, it's, it's garbage. This is, this is garbage. And actually, this is kind of a sanitized version of what that word means. This, this word means detestable and worthless, but another way it can be translated is excrement. Paul is saying his religious resume is like stepping in something in your yard when you haven't scooped up after your dogs. That's literally what he's, what he's saying. He's saying this is equivalent to what comes out of a southbound animal that's headed north, right? It's just, it's excrement. That's pretty strong language and it's intended to be strong language because empty religion is worthless because there's something better, way, way better. He goes on to say what it is, knowing God, not knowing about God, knowing God and knowing him as your Lord. Nothing is better than knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
This is the only time in the New Testament Paul will go out of his way to say, my Lord. He's making a very definitive point here. Huge difference between knowing about God or knowing about someone and then knowing them. We saw this illustrated last week with Sean's excellent sermon on the passage that precedes this. Do you remember the story? Before they came to Grace, he had uh, heard about this guy by the name of Gary Brashears and thought, okay, well, I wonder what the church is like. He worships there. He's part of the leadership. Do you remember what he did? What do you do in our day and age if you want to know about someone? You cyberstalk them. Yeah, you were... You were paying attention, those of you who are here. Yeah, he cyberstalked Gary Bashirs, but then he came and got in relationship and community here, eventually got to know Gary, became one of our elders, became part of our preaching team. Sean knows Gary. He doesn't just know about him. Now he has relationship with him and he knows him. But the language here for knowing Jesus is even deeper than the relationship between two friends. This actually is talking about the highest level of intimacy that is possible. The intimacy between a husband knowing his wife and a wife knowing her husband. That's the type of intimacy that is being described when we talk about knowing God. He wants that close of a relationship with you and with me. But it's not about what you do that qualifies you for that. It's not like a resume where you try to apply. This is about whether you choose to receive or reject what Jesus has done for you on the cross. We were vacationing in Canada last weekend, and as we were coming to the border, we all began looking for our passports and stuff, and I was struck by this reality because I knew I'd be preaching this passage. What would happen if we came to the border and drove up to the border guard and I handed him my resume? How well would that work for me? Why should I let you back into the United States? Well, here's my resume. I do this, I've accomplished this, I do this. He would look at me and go, yeah, whatever. Where's your passport? Because what does a passport say? A passport says that someone else says I'm okay. Someone in the government, for whatever reason, in our government thinks I'm okay. So therefore, I can get back into the country. It has nothing to do with me. And the amazing thing with the gospel is that God declares you okay when you're not, and neither am I. Because we don't start out that way. All of us start out broken. It does not matter how moral you think you are, how self-righteous you think you are, how religious you think you are, how good of a person you think you are, you're still broken to the very core. And knowing that, recognizing that, God seeing us fully in all that, owing us nothing, he offers us a way out. It's okay to not be okay, but it is not okay to stay that way. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to turn away from our brokenness and to know him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And just so we're on the same page, when scripture talks about faith, when it's being talked about in this passage, that is more than just belief. So many times faith gets diluted in our thinking and in our acting and in our culture to just mentally agreeing with someone or, or mentally buying into something or just kind of going along with it you know, when I feel like it. That is not what faith is. Faith is the idea of belief, but it is also the idea of loyalty. Just like in a relationship, you believe in someone, you're loyal to them. 
So therefore, it does matter how you live your life. If you claim to know God, then there is a change that has happened in your heart, and you can know what that's like. He tells us, what is the evidence that you know God, that you have responded to and received Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior? Well, he's talked about circumcision already, but we serve God by his spirit. Sean went into great depths with this last week. If you were gone, you need to go online and listen to that sermon. He talked about the reality of if you know God, then you will serve God. And it is impossible to serve Jesus, to serve God without serving other people. Life will become less and less you-focused if you know God. Another example of that is what's important to you will begin to change as well. What you value, here it's described as boasting in Jesus, which practically means what you have, what you do, what you've accomplished, the status of your relationships, what other people think about you, those things will begin to lose their power and their influence over you because you have something better. You don't have to look for your significance in those things. You find your significance in God and what God thinks about you, what God has done for you and what he is doing in you. And it's a really interesting process because it's somewhat mysterious. In verse 11, Paul says, somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And you need to understand the inflection of here because it, it really does represent the grammar here and what's being said. People can look at this and, it's, and you can think, oh, well, he's doubting whether he's really someday gonna be with Jesus. That's not it at all. He's not saying, well, somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. This is well, somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead, meaning he doesn't have all the details figured out, but this is a certainty. This is, this is a reality. This is going to happen in his life. And early, you know, prior to that, in the verse prior to, he says, because I'm becoming like him in his death, which is, again is a really interesting statement. But at the end of the day, it means obeying God even to the point of death, just like Jesus did. And just like Jesus' example in the chapter prior to this one. That's what that means. But that process is a really interesting process. Reminds me of concrete. My dad was in construction as a construction superintendent for his whole working life. So I've, I've been around concrete my whole life. I should probably know more about it and how to work with it than I do. But I know concrete because my dad knew concrete. He was constantly pouring footings, pouring foundation, pouring sidewalks, pouring driveways, what have you, pouring curbs. And the thing with concrete is before you pour something, you build a form. And then you fill it with concrete. And as the concrete hardens, it takes the shape of the form and then you can pull the forms off. And then it's hardened to the point where it becomes permanent. And I think that's a very similar picture to what's being introduced here because this is talking about becoming like Jesus as a present reality and it's also a future reality. It means that God through his Holy Spirit, through him living in you, is forming you, conforming you to become more like him. You'll look and act and live more like Jesus the more you know him, the more you follow him, the more you respond to his Holy Spirit in your life. And as you do that, your values begin to change, your priorities begin to change, your motives begin to change, and ultimately your behavior begins to change. And you experience the joy and the hope and the life and all the fruit of the Spirit that Scripture talks about. But it's not an easy process, and Paul 
speaks to that here as well. The reality is, if you follow Jesus, it's not a question of if you will suffer for that. It's a question of when. And scripture is really explicit about that. Paul has already been explicit about this in this letter. In the first chapter, he says, if you're following Jesus, we're appointed to suffer for him. Aren't you glad you came to church today for to hear that? But it's, but it's true. And that's part of the somehow that Paul's referring to here. Somehow, God will even use suffering. He never wastes pain. He never wastes struggle and difficulty and heartache. Somehow, if we will allow him and let him, he will use that to grow us and to change us and to help us become more like, like him. Because this is the reality. It will cost you to follow Jesus. It may cost you some of your stuff, your health, your reputation, your security, your comfort. Where's that line for you? Wherever that line is, that's a big ask. I mean, is it worth it? That's one of the bottom line questions. Is it worth it to follow Jesus when it costs you? Man, some of you are there this morning. I know you are. You're chewing on this. And if you're not there, you will be there. So, so is it worth it? Why? Why would you do that? Jesus speaks to this in many Ways. One of those ways is he told a story in Matthew 13. And it's a story of a guy who somehow he finds himself in this field. I can envision this guy. We don't have these details in Jesus' story, but I can envision this guy looking to take a shortcut through a field. So he goes you know, over this field that isn't his, and he's walking along with a staff, and all of a sudden, chink. Chink, chink, chink. And he puts his staff down and begins to dig, and here's this chest full of money that's been buried in the field, which is very plausible because in the first century, you didn't have banks. If you had money and you wanted to save it, you hid it. You buried it in the ground under a tree or someplace where you could find it. So presumably, here's this field with this treasure, Jesus says, buried in it. Don't know where it came from or how it got there, but here's this field. This man finds it, and what does he do? He does something that his friends probably thought was absolutely crazy. We're not given that detail either, but it says he sells everything. Can you imagine selling everything you own in order to buy a piece of land that just looked like nothing, but underneath it is this incredible treasure that's beyond counting, and that's what he did. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what it's like to know me. I am your treasure. I am worth more than anything you have in your life. So how can he ask us to, to follow him when it may cost us? Because it's so worth it. That's what Paul's declaring here. And because it is worth it, if you will follow Jesus even when it costs you, even when it's difficult, or even when it's not, you will live distinctly. 
and the people around you will notice and you will get opportunity to tell your story and to tell who Jesus is and what he's done and why he's the treasure in your life. At this appointment this last week, for three years I've been going to this appointment and it's like in one day I got to share Christ with pretty much everybody I came in contact with. It was unbelievable. I live, for the most part, in a Christian bubble. I work with Jesus followers here. I spend a lot of time with you. I have to be very deliberate about being around unbelievers in my life. Because, man, I love Jesus. He's my treasure, and I, I do want to tell other people about him. And so every week, pretty much, I pray, God, please give me an opportunity. I don't know where it's going to come from, what it's going to look like, but give me an opportunity to tell someone about you. Because when you have the opportunity to do that, it's like it totally cements, once again, who Jesus is, what he means to you, why he is your treasure. It just, it pumps you up. I love to tell people about Jesus. And so that's what I was praying going into this appointment this week. And I've never had this conversation before with, with the phlebotomist, the, the lady who was taking my blood, but I sat down and began to talk with her. And we've talked these last three years, but she's never called me by name. And I sat down, and for some reason, this last week, that day, she said, oh, hey, Jay, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing okay, and we began this small talk. And I said, I know you've got my chart, and I know you know my name, but why'd you call me by name? And she said, oh, everybody knows who you are around here. Really? <laughs> do tell, why is that? And I did, I asked her, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And she said, because we've all noticed that when any of us are with you, we feel at peace. There is a calmness when someone's with you that we've all experienced, we've talked about it. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird, but wow, that's cool too, right? What is that? Was that me? Kind of, but me, but more importantly, Jesus. That is Christ in me. That's what she saw and she couldn't quite put her finger on, but he is the source of my peace. We have a story to tell. So are, are you praying? Are you looking and are you taking, taking advantages of the opportunity to tell that story? Man, God's word tells us, Peter tells us, always, not sometimes, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that it was within you. Do, you. do you have hope within you? Because if you know Jesus, there's nothing better, nothing better than knowing him and treasuring him. One of the first stories to come out of the shooting this last week was this story. I don't know if you saw this. It was the first one I read in the news feed as I was beginning to follow what was going on with the shooting. But this is Sonny and Heather Melton. They're Jesus followers. But that's, that's not the point of the, the story that came out about them. They were at that concert when the shooting began. Sonny is a, is a nurse and um, Heather is an orthopedic surgeon. And that's how they met. And he assists her on many of her surgeries. They work at the same hospital or on the same staff. Recently got married. The shooting began and they began to run. And he deliberately placed himself between his wife and the path of the shooter, or the bullets rather, that were coming down from the hotel. And Heather said in the interview that she felt the bullet that hit his body 
and that took his life. This man willingly sacrificed himself, placed himself between his wife and the shooter in order to save her life. Guy's a hero. His wife is alive today because of his sacrifice, and it's profoundly tragic and heartbreaking. But as I think about this, you know, here's another cheerful thought. It's not a question of if I'm going to die someday. It's a question of when, unless Jesus comes back beforehand, and like you, I'm praying like crazy that that happens. But if he doesn't come back before I die, I, I'm going to die. And probably like many of you, if not all of you, I'd like to die in my sleep. That's my vote. Can I go to sleep, wake up in heaven? Jesus, you know, pretty awesome. And can I do it at the same time as my wife when we're like 130 years old? You know, it's just, there we go. But that's probably not going to happen. But when I die someday, if I am called to or have the opportunity to stand between my wife or my children or someone I love and a bullet, I hope I get to go out that way. As a man, I hope I get to die protecting those I love. If I don't get to go in my sleep, that's my second vote. If I'm gonna die, that's how I want to. It's probably not too difficult for us to imagine dying for someone you love. There's something in us that resonates with that, that says, yes, I, Sonny Melton was a hero to sacrifice his life for his wife. But I want you to picture the person in your life who feels like an enemy. Maybe they are. They're the person who has wronged you, hurt you. You fill in the blank, but they're your enemy. They have it out for you or did. Can you imagine sacrificing your life for them? Do we realize and appreciate that God's word declares in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? And to put that another way, as scripture also does, while we were God's enemies, he stood between us and the bullet of death in order to save our life. Is he your treasure? How could we reasonably say that there's anything better than knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? That is God's love for you, a God who would die for you and me when he owes us nothing and yet gives us everything. We have a story to tell. And this world desperately needs to hear it. That this isn't all there is, this broken world. That there is hope. There is a God who has died for us to save our lives and to give us joy and hope and peace. And it's ours to have. What do you do with a God like that? You worship him. You love him. You thank him. And that's what we're going to do as our worship team comes. And as we prepare to do so, I want to encourage you. As always, every Sunday we have communion tables off to the side. 
Would you go and take communion as, as the Spirit leads you if you want to and remind yourself of what this God has, has done for you? Our prayer teams will be up here. They would love to pray with you. But I want to pray for any of you this morning who are questioning whether you know about God or whether you truly know him. And once again, we want to give you that opportunity to know him as your Lord and Savior. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes and would you pray with me as we prepare to worship? I so remember years ago sitting under a tree, Lord, at night, looking up at the sky and realizing I knew about you and I knew quite a bit about you, but I did not know you. And I remember inviting you into my life by receiving you as my Lord and Savior. So I pray for anyone here who is questioning whether they truly know you or not, that they would choose to know you right here this afternoon. That just between you and them, they would pray to you, Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you forgive me. Thank you that you want to come into my life. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, would you remind us once again of the treasure that you are to us, of what you've done for us, of what our life is truly about with you a part of it. Lord, thank you that you're good. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you love us. And we worship and praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.